0: As opposed to 20 years ago today, it is in fact 50 years ago today. This day, the 1st of June 1967... Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was released to a waiting world, and it certainly took it by storm. As you can see, here we are 50 years later talking about it. And joining me right now is one of the men who was actually in the studio when those recordings took place. His name is Richard Lush, and he, along with Jeff Emmerich, recorded and mixed this classic album. And, Richard, what a day it is for not only the world, but for you as well, and welcome aboard.
1: Well, uh... Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that wonderful intro. I mean, for me, it doesn't seem that long ago. It's sort of quite weird. Well, it does, but it doesn't. You know, I, I, I'm i uh, sort of quite surprised that it is that long.
0: Yeah. Is it? Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that you were, you know, 18 when this was recorded, really, the year before? Yeah. And so it was so vivid in your mind?
1: Well, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about it, and I've, I've sort of got a theory. I mean, there's some some people I've recorded that I can't remember a thing about. I cannot remember even whether I did record them. You know, somebody said, oh, I did Man Free Man, Pretty Flamingo. Well, I, I don't remember doing it. I remember recording Man Free Man, but not Pretty Flamingo. So um, I think... I think if it's a classic, if it's a classic song and it has a, you know, sort of a life, you kind of remember a lot about it. But mm. if, it, if it's kind of a throwaway song, it kind of goes into the, the the back of the mind somewhere there.
0: It must have been an exciting time for you though, Richard, because this was this really your your first job out of school, and there you found it was. yourself.
1: Yeah, it was. Well, um, I used to work in the school holidays for a, a friend of my father's who had a building company. Um, so I used to do a bit of sort of bricky painting work just to get a bit of money in the holidays, but it was my first official job
0: as what, such. Yes. What a lucky man.
1: Yes. Well, it's weird. I, you know. And all, I mean, I went for an interview, and they didn't actually have a – Job at the time, and then they rang me back about three months later, and the, the rest is history. Yeah, but it's uh, but I was lucky. I mean, you know, we were we worked bloody hard for it, mind you, but um, but you know, we were lucky enough to be Ab- Abbey Road, well, EMI Studios, it was back then, was just they they just had a great roster of artists. <laughs> One of them being the Beatles, of course.
0: Were you an actually a, a fan at that time, Richard? I'm think- Not particularly.
1: No, I was kind of a stone. You know, at school you were either a Stones man or a or a Beatles man, and I was a. Everybody were Beatles people at school, so I decided to go Mick Jagger way. So I was a Stones man, <laughs> but then you know. Then I met Mick Jagger, and he was very tiny, and uh, uh, and I'd already converted to the
0: Beatles by then. Yeah, I bet you had spending all that time in a studio with them would have changed you. Give give us an idea about what those boys were like then.
1: Well, sort of when I well when I first worked with them, I worked on uh, Paperback Writer, and that was quite a quick quite a quick process. And that was only one of two times when um, Brian Epstein came in. I mean, he was their sort of infamous manager. And he only came in for that session and for All You Need Is Love. That was the only time he ever came and checked up on his boys. So he was very trusting. Mm. And, um, no, I mean, they were, I mean, the only difference really between Pepper and Anything else that was being done at the time was the fact that it took so much longer, and they had—I mean, most other bands were in London for a for a couple of days. They would do a single and then they go back on the road again. Whereas um, the Beatles had stopped touring when the Pepper Session started, and um, they had all the time in the world. So that was a, that. Was a luxury that the, the Hollies and from the shadows and Freddie and the dreamers and all the various people that were signed to EMI didn't have
0: so they moved in in a, in a bizarre sort of way and, and and you were part of that and, and and I guess it was almost it would have been a, one of those situations where you all became a little family working on this project
1: well it w- was a bit i mean unfortunately abbey road n- number 2 is an up it's an upstairs and a downstairs so it always was a little bit us and them but you know the fact that we were there all the time, and for quite long periods of time, and they would ring up and say, "Oh," and they would want studio time on Friday or something. Somebody else would be in there. They would get bumped out, and the Beatles would come in. Um, so it was, it was a you know, and George, George Martin, Jeff and I became a little, a little sort of family. You know, he was like our dad because he was. 38 so he was you know he was the old man and um and we were sort of 18 and i think Jeff was 20 so
0: was he a stern man george martin i i interviewed him no. a few years ago he was a lovely lovely man but i just wondered what he was like to work for no i mean he never
1: he he was pretty he was pretty okay he was pretty i mean he never i don't think he ever i can't remember being told off by him or I mean, he would say his catchphrase would always be, "Oh, honestly, Richard." You know, and he'd sort of, you know, if I did something, you know, or wanted to do something outrageous with the flanging, he would, "Oh, honestly, Richard, that's too over the top," you know. And um, but a
0: lot of a lot of that sound was very over the top for the time.
1: Well, that's right, and um, and and that's what they wanted. I mean, they didn't want. I mean, John particularly. Never wanted to sound the same the next day. You know, he didn't particularly like the sound of his voice, and he always wanted wanted it to sound different. You know. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, most artists, you just you know, they were just they sounded how they sounded, and that mm-hmm. was how it was. You know.
0: Did Did you get the feeling that that uh, they'd walked in there prepared, or was stuff actually put together oh, as they yes went along? and
1: no. Yes and no. Sometimes they'd be... Sometimes they'd have sort of... I mean, Day in the Life, for instance. I mean, they had... Uh, John's part of it was all done, and then Paul wrote the middle part, the woke up, fell out of bed. He wrote that so about a month after it was actually recorded. So um, they didn't know what to put in the middle part. And then um, uh, Paul... Right, or maybe Paul and John, but it was mainly Paul's words, mm.
0: and, so and, hence,
1: and hence he sang it.
0: And those words just lifted up that track so much. I mean, it must have been amazing sitting in the studio just <laughs> listening to what it had turned into.
1: Well, it was. I mean, when I first heard it, they'd already put the, the basic track down, and and then we just added more and more onto it. We added the orchestra. We put the chord on the end. We tried this and we tried that and then when it was all finished I think everybody felt very uh, proud of it and thought wow this is really gonna you know make you know you were made for me by Freddie and the Dreamers sound like a nursery rhyme you know I bet. and um, and and it did you know I mean everybody any anybody that came in and heard it sort of went whoa
0: god you know it must be amazing thinking back from this time, Richard. Uh, just you were probably one of the first to hear it. You know, um, mm. it, you know, it, it, it was a worldwide phenomenon after it was released. But you heard it before anyone else.
1: That's right. And that was kind of it was kind of good and bad because you wanted people to hear it. You know, I mean, I can I can remember when I uh, first heard "How's That" with Sherbet. You know, Garth. Garth played it to me and um, the the same thing kind of happened with that I thought wow that's fantastic what a great song and then I once we'd done it I couldn't wait for radio to hear it you know mm. and, that, and that the same thing happened with Day in the Life and it sort of happened when you, when you do record a great song you want to rush out and play it to everybody because you know you do feel excited about it
0: Richard I'm speaking with Richard Lush, uh, one of the uh, the men who was involved in the recording uh, of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. That feeling of camaraderie around the studio, there must have been so much creativity, not only just in the studio, but in the streets of London in those days. You had so much great music happening. Uh, oh, it
1: was, was yeah.
0: It, was it riding a wave of the time?
1: Um, well, I mean... A- we were in the studio so much, I wasn't actually out on the street seeing what was going on. <laughs> but um, but no, it was. I mean, you know, I mean, I can remember. You know, Graham Nash used to pop his head in every now and then. And, you know, the the they'd always say, you know, try not to leave the door open if we're playing anything because they didn't want people to hear what they were doing. You know, mm. and everybody was very in, inquisitive. I mean, when Graham heard the, um, you know, the sound effects and everything on Good Morning, Good Morning. You know, the, he, he then wanted to put some sound effects on their album. They were halfway through an album. they said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of do that on ours. Can you help us do it, you know? Yeah. And uh, we sort of cut all these tapes up, put all these effects on, and then, you know, they changed their mind. And then I had to go and find all the bits of tape that I'd undone and put the, put it all back together again, you know?
0: It's but, interesting um, looking also at, at the album uh, as it was released. Uh, you know, it has so many different feels to it. I mean, obviously it's the overriding. It's the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and, and that establishes itself really in the first song.
1: Yes, yes. And then you kind of get the reprise at the end, which actually was one of the last things we we recorded. It was. One, I'm pretty sure it was the last thing we did. For the album, and that was sort of a really good session. They were really, really up, mm. really up vibe, and it was um, it was fantastic. So, I mean, we had we had some strenuous ones, some long sessions, and then when you do something quickly and they're in the mood, it's it was there was nothing better, you know. It was terrific.
0: Yeah, great sound. And it's interesting how it went from that. You know, that that quite sort of. A nostalgic recording, which was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, which sets it all up and bookends it in a way, it goes straight to a very little intimate song with Ringo with a little help from my friends.
1: Yes, yes. Intimate at half past six in the morning, I think he did the vocal. Poor bugger. <laughs> he got he, he he got put on the spot. But he came, you know, it, it took him a while, but he, he came up with the goods and... Um, it was quite funny. I saw I saw him in concert a few years ago now, and sitting in the audience and hearing him singing that was sort of quite weird. I felt very uh, very strange, thinking God, the last time I heard this was 45 years ago. You God. know, it's, uh, it was very weird.
0: <laughs> and, and then from there it goes into something that really yeah you could say strawberry fields really set it up when it was released as a single beforehand. But Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was a totally different sound.
1: Yes, uh, that that's one of my favorite favorite tracks too. That and Day in the Life and Lucy was sort of very uh, very 1967. You know, it was mm-hmm. very peace and love and. And a uh, great vocal, but, but there again, you know, it's, I mean, there's some super songs on there.
0: Yeah, oh, fantastic. I mean, but that vocal as well um, yeah. was really processed, wasn't
1: it? Yes, yeah, that was my little flanging box. Well, not box, it's quite a big box. And we. once John heard that sound, he loved it. He, he wanted it on 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 everything, you know.
0: Yeah, but it, uh, and then it was followed by Getting Better, which is really sort of back to the old Beatles.
1: Yeah, that was actually done in a... Well, that was started started off its life in, a, in another studio, and they sort of brought that to Abbey Road as a backing track, and then we did the vocals and the bass, and um, so it actually started off somewhere else. So, and it's not... I mean, I don't think of that as being one of the... It's kind of a little bit of a misfit for me. It's kind of not quite as psychedelic as some of the others, but um,
0: a great know, song. It's cool.
1: But it's still cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, uh, we're working our way through the tracks, <laughs> really, of Sergeant Pepper's. We've gotten onto it. Uh, strangely enough, Richard Lush. So let's continue, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, fixing a hole, which is a gentle little little ditty.
1: Fixing a hole. Yes, that there, there again. That was. That was quite a quick track to record, you know there wasn't a lot of time spent on it, and um not a lot not so much effects on that on that one for some reason. Don't ask me why um it just happened went out of the way, and it was done, so uh, I'm not quite sure why we didn't go to town on that.
0: Do you think that was part of their process? They'd come up with things that, that they'd throw those songs out. I had that feeling of listening to them over the years, and and most of their material, a song would just come up, and it didn't necessarily follow their style all the time, but it would be just something great, and it was short, but but really worked.
1: Yeah, well, that was one. I mean, I mean, that was one good thing about them. They, you know, as you said, each song was a total. You know they were so different. I mean, when I'm 64 and things like that. I mean, most bands, the songs were pretty similar. You know, I mean, the Beach Boys stuff was all kind of, you know, very, very similar in style. And uh, you know, they were, or once they got out of the surfing, surfing period of their lives, they, you know, Pet Sounds was kind of a bit mm. different. But but uh, you never and because. Although it said Leonard and McCartney, I mean usually whoever sung the song had the main writing in the song. So yeah. if if John sung it then he he wrote most of it. Paul would help him out. I mean there's there's one great picture of them sitting sitting in the control room staring or with with some paper on a tape box, obviously writing trying to write some lyrics or finish off some lyrics. And, um, you know, they, they would write lyrics together, but the main part of the song was normally written by whoever sung it.
0: But the, I got the feeling that they both, you know, checked with each other. The the, the fact that they were so strong as a writing uh, partnership was the fact that we, they'd sort of check with each other and sort of go, what do you reckon about this? They yes,
1: exactly. I mean, they were always polishing, you know, polishing the... The lyrics off, and you know, even when they were when they came to sing the final vocal, they would they would both be there, and you know, John would you know maybe want to change something or throw a word in here or there, and uh, so it it was never set in stone.
0: Hmm. Um, She's Leaving Home is is really I you know goes back to the Eleanor Rigby, uh, just such a soulful little personal song.
1: Yes, yeah, and that, and that was, I think, a great great arrangement. George Martin didn't uh, didn't do that. He was a bit he was a bit miffed. He was doing something else when that was being done. And Paul was a bit bolsy, and he wanted to go ahead and do it on a sp- specific day. And um, it was actually done by a guy called Mike Leander, uh. who sort of did quite a few Cliff Richard arrangements, and he was a, sort of a young. A young uh, arranger around town, but it was, but um, yeah, it was good. I mean, it's nice, nice vocal on it,
0: even if it was behind Dad's back, so to speak.
1: Well, that's right, that's right. (laughs) But I think, I think George Martin. Worked out the backing vocals on that, so oh, he man. kind of got his he got his little stamp on it.
0: <laughs> Good. You know? uh, and then we're back in a away to Sergeant Pepper's again, with the benef- being for the benefit of Mister Kite. That seems to be like the middle.
1: Yes, well that that took quite a while to do that one. That that took quite a while because John John sort of envisaged it as a as a, a scene. And he wanted to, you know, smell the sawdust and all this sort of stuff. So he he was kind of dreaming it rather than it just being a song on a record. So um,
0: it does take you somewhere else. It's that hurdy-gurdy sort of feel, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. And And we used a whole lot of tapes. George Martin sent me up to the tape library to get a whole lot of different bits of music to play backwards and forwards and whatever, we joined them all together and flew them in, which was very time consuming. But, um,
0: would, it be fair but to, would it be fair to say to you, Richard Lush, that you had to be the runner in many different ways? Because you were young, you would have been sent off for things.
1: Well, I guess so, yeah. I mean, I mean, thinking about it, I mean, in those days, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, oh, you know, you know we can push a button and get the roar of a lion and a cat meowing and whatever. But we we had a huge library of sound effects and you had to kind of go through them all to find everything they wanted. So, you know, you were sort of up and down and up and down all the time. So, well,
0: Thank goodness was, you were young.
1: I was young and fit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, Richard, uh, look, within you and without you comes out of that and suddenly we're back into psychedelia in a major way, aren't we? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, that was, George did all of that on his on his own, when I say he did it on his own. Uh, John and Paul sort of had a few days off while he was doing that. I think they came in very late one night, and we were doing some sitar overdubs, and they just popped their head in, but they basically left George to do that by himself. So, um, you know, he got all his Indian mates in, and we... Had instruments that we'd never seen before, and thought, "God, oh, how do you mic this up?" You know.
0: Yeah. How do you and, mic up uh, a sitar?
1: Well, you basically put a mic above it. You know, about two or three foot above it. I mean, it's the same as anything. You kind of, you know, somebody, somebody at Abbey Road taught me that you you walk around the instrument, and if you hear it sounding good from one particular spot put the mic there, you know, I mean, it's not. Makes sense. Or later on, I mean, on Pepper, Jeff put mics, you know, in French horns about, you know, six inches away for the French horns on Pepper. It was very, very close mic. Right. So we kind of, you know, always experiment. I mean, Jeff was great like that. He'd always experiment.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking while we're talking about George. Was he quiet round the studio? Was he was he having fun? I mean, we always hear about Lennon and McCartney, but what what was George round the studio like? Yeah, he was pretty. He was pretty
1: quiet. He was pretty quiet. He's kind of you know, um, he just got his stuff done, and um, I mean, it always used to take a long time. I mean, the sitar solo on that took forever to do all these little lines, you know. And his guitar solos always took a long time to do, and if he did a backwards solo, that would take forever. So, um, so you kind of had to be patient. But, um, but no, he was very chilled, very laid back. He never really, you know, got aggro at all. Yeah.